You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. If you're involved even a little bit with concussion care, you're probably aware that the latest concussion and sport group reports from the Amsterdam meeting came out a little bit over a week ago at the time of the release of this episode in mid-June of 2023. A large series of systematic reviews and updated clinical recommendations were published and all are available free to download from the British Journal of Sports Medicine from two different issues. We're going to review the updated guidelines with a trusted colleague who is part of the process. Let's find out what's new in the world of concussions. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today has been on the podcast before, Dr. Christina Master. Dr. Master is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine and founding co-director of the Minds Matter Concussion Program at CHOP with almost three decades of experience in clinical pediatrics. Dr. Master is board certified in pediatrics, sports medicine, and brain injury medicine, caring for over 800 children with concussion annually in her outpatient clinical practice. The Minds Matter Concussion Program provides clinical care, community outreach, and education, and conducts translational clinical research in youth concussion. Her particular research emphasis has been describing the identifying objective biomarkers in order to target active interventions to improve outcomes for those with concussion. So welcome back to the podcast, Tina. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, you've been busy. I've been busy. I've just finished getting my middle son graduated, having his graduation party. You had some recent nuptials, I know, in your family. So congratulations on that. Yes, my daughter got married this month. Yeah, it was very exciting. Awesome stuff. Back in the world of concussions again, it never leaves us. For those of us that are involved in this regularly, I think it would be helpful for those of us that, because I've never been to one of these concussion and sport group meetings, and I'm sure the vast majority of our listeners have not either, just talking a little bit about just your experience as being one of the experts involved with the process, and then just what you thought of the Amsterdam meeting in general. Yeah. So just full disclosure, I was not one of the authors on the actual consensus statement, but I was an author on three of the systematic reviews that were conducted. And that was one of the reasons and the rationale for why I was attending. And so just to demystify the process a little bit, they have an open meeting where folks are invited to come present research in poster format, and then also hear talks about essentially what has been found in terms of the systematic reviews and how they were conducted. And so basically there were presentations during that open public meeting where the lead authors of each of the systematic reviews presented summaries of the data that had been gleaned from the reviews that had been going on for the last few years, actually. And so obviously the pandemic put a whole wrinkle in things because originally it was supposed to happen, the meeting was supposed to happen in 2020. And then it got postponed twice till 22. And then the literature really exploded in that couple of years so that these systematic reviews actually were real behemoths in terms of the volume of papers and data that they had to go through each group. And so that's how the meeting was conducted. And then the consensus process was basically essentially closed to the public, but all the experts were invited. Only the members of the actual expert consensus team were permitted to vote. So the rest of us who were 
experts on the systematic reviews were observers, so we could observe the process, which I think they wanted to have for transparency purposes, which I think is always good. And they've been working on trying to have the process a little bit more transparent with each go around so that people understand how they've arrived at the consensus recommendations. And so then basically all of the different pieces of data, recommendations that were either going to stay the same or be updated or changed, were all presented along with the evidence to support or the lack of evidence to support, and then also underwent essentially a group vote. One of the papers that was published in BJSM, written by Catherine Schneider, who was one of the lead authors of the consensus statement, also went through that process, the whole mechanics of the process, the systematic reviews and the process and the data. It was pretty involved for sure. And it was very, very interesting and a lot of work and a lot of elbow grease certainly went into pulling all the data that went into this. So it really was a monumental effort for sure. Yeah, it's always interesting. I was noticing a little bit on there. There's not been that much on social media because social media has been dominated by the Peter Hotez and uh, Joe Rogan and RFK Jr. battle right now. So the concussion in sports group has gotten pushed to the side. But I have seen a couple of people who have been a little bit critical about the process. And it's helpful to to hear that from you because I think people just assume that everybody just comes to this meeting and they just talk at this meeting and it's just this one meeting and they review all the articles in that time frame. And that's really not how these systematic reviews happen. It's There's a lot of pre-preparation for these types of things and, yes, and a lot of discussion goes into it. Absolutely. It's not just people coming together and shooting the breeze and then coming up with a consensus statement. There were content authors who were experts in the content, but then there were also multiple methods authors who were involved with the whole process of developing, extracting the data for the systematic reviews. And there were librarians involved each step of the way in terms of designing the search searches that were used to pull the data. And I think one of the things that I think is important to actually frame even our whole conversation tonight was that this is a consensus statement on sport-related concussion. So that is one narrowing of the whole big bucket of concussion. And we know that there's a it's a big bucket. So you narrow it somewhat by limiting it to just sport-related and sport and exercise-related concussion. And then the other thing that I think is important to recognize too, which may answer some of the questions as to why people will say, There were certain papers that weren't included and they don't understand why. And I'm saying this as someone who's written some of those papers that weren't included. Just for Mm -hmm. full disclosure, we had some of our research at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was included in some of the systematic reviews, but some were not. And it's really all in how you define the inclusion criteria for the systematic review. And not only did it have to be a sport-related mechanism, the range was that the paper had to be anywhere from 50 to 80% sport-related mechanism. So you really couldn't have the big, fat, other category of motor vehicle crashes or interpersonal violence or other kinds of accidents that were not sports or exercise-related. And if you can imagine, we're in pediatrics, almost all of our papers are 60% sports (laughs) and 40% non-sports mechanism or 50-50 even. depending on each systematic review was somewhere in that range, but 
it was still, it was basically the majority really had to be sport-related concussion. And so as a result, you eliminate things like military concussions, a lot of pediatric concussions, a lot of like older adult concussions. So again, I think that before we backseat drive or Monday morning quarterback or whatever phrase you want to use, I think that it is worthwhile to go through what were the strict criteria by which they set the systematic review inclusion criteria. And then that gives you a little bit of an idea of why it looks the way it does, where there may be some blind spots, which I think they do acknowledge. And there is more research that needs to be done in general, but there are certain areas where perhaps that may need to be done as well. So I think that sometimes also helps frame just your approach to these papers, just by knowing. Take a peek at those methods before you like dive into the meat of the recommendations. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point about, we can all just say, yeah, concussion is a concussion. But we do know for those of us that, that deal with these regularly and do see some that come from car accidents or other mechanisms, there there is a difference. Then there there is something inherently different. And again, we know that there's so many factors that go into why someone may experience the symptoms that they do. And having a, the trauma and the stress and anxiety of a teenager who sustains a car accident, and I just trashed mom and dad's car, and the anxiety that goes along with that, as opposed to one that may happen from sports, there's a whole different ball of things that we have to deal with in that particular individual that we may not have to deal with the sport-related concussion. So it is good that we tease that out, especially when we're defining these as how we're giving guidance for sports, because they really are different animals. And those who work in this field frequently, you know the difference and you've seen it. It is, there is a palpable difference that's there. So I think that's great that that was done. So I think it would be helpful. Let's talk a little bit about some of your individual sections, because I think it's, you have that insight there specifically for your systematic reviews. One I wanted to start off with was return to, to learn, return to school and return to sport, because that's my big area of interest in the world of concussions. I'm curious just what your key recommendations that came out of this particular section, and we can tease out some things. I'd love to talk to you about some things that I saw as I was reviewing through these. And this is not light reading, by the way, as yeah. you go through these types of things. There is, I don't, what is there? There, I, I have a stack on the side here when I was printing these out last week, yeah. and it was uh, my Father's Day reading weekend was uh, oh. reading through the <laughs> concussion and sports stuff. It was important to get through this stuff and obviously wanting to talk about what's new. I think it's helpful, but tell me a little bit about that process for you. Yeah, no, I think that this whole, the recovery paper with the return to learn, the return to sport perspective, that was led by Margo Patukian and Steve Brolio. And it was a real beast of a topic to cover. And one of the things actually that the team realized really out of the gate was that there's not a single definition of recovery. And so that's a problem with our field, because depending on what you look at, is it symptom recovery? Is it return to school, full school with accommodations or without accommodations? Or is it return to play and returning to a non-contact sport or a contact sport with collision? And so there's lots of different definitions floating out there in the research so that made it very hard to synthesize the data. It also probably reflects the fact that as we are realizing now that concussion recovery is not like a single unitary point in time, that different aspects of the concussion re recover at different rates and at different points along that recovery trajectory. And really, we want to have all of those different neurologic systems recovered before they get back to their full activities, especially if they have risk involved. And so that was the first thing that I think folks noted. 
And so I think that limited a little bit how the data could be combined, A. But then beyond that, I think that the couple of things that were helpful and interesting about the return to school and sport was that time in and time again, time in and time out, basically, it really was quite clear that if you continue to play and if you have delayed access to healthcare providers with experience managing concussion, sport-related concussion, those were both factors that could prolong your recovery. And so I think that there were multiple papers that indicated that. And the great news about that was that's a modifiable factor, right? That's something that we can do something about, right? Again, we have raised a lot of awareness so that hopefully there's more self-reporting. Hopefully there is more in terms of coaches and other parents and other lay folks that are at least having a lower threshold and recognizing the potential of a concussion in their own child. Hopefully there's an increase in athletic trainers on the sidelines and athletic training rooms with kids having access to that. Certainly there was evidence that Title IX seemed to have made an impact at the collegiate level in leveling the playing field for men and women where, you know, women, when they have access to care, have similar outcomes. In two large studies from the NCAA DOD CARE Consortium, as well as the Big Ten Ivy Consortium, and then data from high school and teenagers, both from our group at CHOP, as well as the Pittsburgh group, Anthony Contos and his group in Pittsburgh, demonstrate that earlier identification and presentation for care makes a difference. And so that, I think, is one big take-home for sure. I think the other thing that was reinforced was the fact that obviously there's always the concern, like you said, everybody comes to a concussion with their own history and their own baggage, so to speak. And sometimes a concussion can make those things worse. Maybe not always, but if it does, at least you want to think about that. And sometimes it doesn't. But at least if you do have a prior history, you do want to take that into account no matter what it is in terms of the management. And then Again, I think from that standpoint, the greater attention to all of this, I think, can only be a good thing in terms of making sure that kids are getting to the right place and the right care at the right time. I think that the reason why presenting to care earlier makes a difference to someone who knows what they're doing with concussion is that we're really moving towards this active management and not passive management. And so if you're getting into active management sooner, then that active management gets you actively well sooner. And so I think that's a big point. The one thing that I definitely think will make a lot of us pause is that whole idea that most kids don't need school accommodations when they go back for concussion. I know you had mentioned that in our conversation, and I've heard from other folks as well. And I think the one thing that you have to remember about most of these papers is that many of them are looking at all comers and not just a specialty group. And so I don't think that what the recommendation from this is not to give any. I think it really is until we can figure out who really needs them and who doesn't, we just give them to everybody. And then hopefully we get a little bit better at predicting who's going to need them for a little bit longer or a little bit more intensely. And what Tina's referring to there, and one of the key recommendations or key summaries of this, that like my eyes bulged out when I saw this because this was a highlighted thing, was that the statement 93% of athletes of all ages have full return to learn with no academic support by 10 days, which that definitely does not correlate with my experience, obviously. Now, again, we're specialty clinic, so that's one thing. But I think the other part of that is too, is that when we talk about, and this is the disconnect in mind, we say that athletes 
30% are still recovering at four weeks, yet we say that 93% don't need accommodations or adjustments at after only 10 days. That was a little bit like, that doesn't jive with what we're talking about as far as we're saying that recovery is four weeks, yet within 10 days, you can be out of academic supports. So anyhow, that that was just one statement that I was like, whoa, hey, where did that... And I'm sure, again, that probably has to come from the extracted data from the studies that were included in this. Exactly. Uh, I was yeah. just surprised that that one was highlighted. Yeah, no, I know. I think they're not all sliced and diced the same, for sure. Prolonged view of things gives you a slightly different number than looking at just all comers. The other thing I would point out is that this is also predominantly a young adult cohort in the collegiate area, not as much in the even high school or younger for sure. And so I think that this is going to skew, the data is going to skew older. And so then from that standpoint, that makes a little bit more sense if you're thinking we're talking about like 19, 20, 21 year olds as opposed to a 14 year old. So you're exactly right. I think probably it's more meant to be a reassurance that Still, by and large, concussion for the vast majority of kids can be a straightforward experience, Mm -hmm. but there is a really important subgroup that really needs a lot more intensive support and rehab, and we can do that. But it is one of those things where we still aren't really good at being able to figure out from the get-go who's going to go down which path. Exactly. That's obviously the big key there and stuff that we need to figure out, which we will eventually. Maybe not in our lifetimes and our careers, but we will. <laughs> I'm hopeful. We're getting there. Yeah. The other thing, and again, I think this is probably just my own little personal bias, is I've never been personally a great fan of the stepwise approach to returning to learn. And I get, I know that there was modifications made to the return to sport, which we can certainly talk about because I think that's a crucial part here with that the five step. And now there's just some divisions there. We can count what we're doing for the light aerobic activity as part of those steps early on, which that's great as far as maybe potentially facilitating some early recovery for some people who have very minimal symptoms and are doing well. But And again, everybody has different approaches to this. I just, I don't like myself a cookbook approach to return to learn because I think it's so variable and we know that how symptom flares can go up and down. So are we going up to step three and then going back down to step two because someone had a bad day? Yeah. So that's where I I have a hard time with that one myself. Again, we have to have something out there and we have to have some sort of guidelines. I think it's a little too slow and conservative. I think we're at return to learn now where we were with return to sports and physical activity five or 10 years ago. And I think we'll probably all realize that, hey, moderation is fine and we can facilitate some of these things. We just don't have the research that's out there to back it up yet to put it in a statement. I think you're completely correct, actually, about that. And I do think that there isn't as much research on the return to learn. It's a little bit harder to do than the return to play research. I do think that in general, if people can look at the return to learn framework and not be rigid about it, but really think about it more like a sliding scale, almost like you do with the glucose and diabetes Mm -hmm. that you're just constantly adjusting. And as long as you've got like a nice big safety net for that student, then, you know, again, that safety net can adjust and flex here and there as needed because some kids can go back much more quickly. And even if they have a little setback in that quick ramp up, it's not the end of the world. You just got to have, you have a little setback and you definitely, and most of our listeners are going to 
resonate, have this resonate with them. Recovery is not like a straight line. Right. It's like a zigzag, right? It's like a yep. soft tooth. Good days, bad days, good days, bad days. You just hope in the end, the good days outweigh the bad days. And all of a sudden you've made some progress. And so I think you're hundred percent correct about that. And I think that it is just nuanced. And hopefully the clinicians will be using all of these tools will see them as essentially a framework that they can, you know, nuance and help tailor and personalize for each individual. And to be honest, we don't even see our kids frequently enough to make that day-to-day kind of adjustment. If we can teach our kids and our families, teach our teachers and their guidance counselors, how they can flex and like breathe like in and out with the with the plan with their kids, I think that once they learn the general principles of what we're trying to accomplish, again, relatively speaking, modifying activities, not like shutting anything down. There's no dark rooms or anything, no cocooning. Sometimes you do a little more, sometimes you do a little less, but you're always adjusting a little bit. It's never back. You're not back to 100% until you're back to 100%. Then you always have that safety net while you're flexing back and forth. And I think if we can teach and convey that to our kids and our families and teachers I think that they'll be able to really run with it. Yeah. And I love what you talked about is we do really need to find a better way to educate the educators in this, whether it's at the collegiate level or the high school or middle school or grade school level, because that's where our biggest kind of point, if we can get them to not be fearful of the injury and just make simple adjustments with the kids and give them some little bit of grace here and there, it can go a long way as far as supporting them in school. And and, but it's, it's hard to break into that world just doing it for a long time and for people to get to understand that. And I think that's the big key. So if we can figure out a way to do that, I think that will make concussion care a lot easier at the school level too, and not be so afraid of the injury. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just demystify it. Exactly. I think it's a black box. It's not a clear box yet, but it's definitely not a black box anymore. You know, moving in that direction. For sure. Now, you were also involved with the targeted interventions and their effect on recovery since somatic review. I actually probably have very similar experiences with you on this one because I was involved with a group from PM&R that they were doing a systematic review on this. And I was the AAP's representative for this. And again, going through this systematic review process, this was a three plus year process for us with the AA, with PM&R group, just to go through what interventions are there. So if you want to give some of the key highlights from that review, that would be great. Yeah, no. And I think what's exciting about this is that it really just does demonstrate that the issues in concussion are treatable if they don't recover spontaneously on their own. And so I think from that standpoint, the time frame still is probably in that two to four week time frame, really reflecting that we've got like a mixed population here in terms of athletes where you've got some young adults, and you've also got teenagers. And from that standpoint, I think the couple of things that have the strongest support is really this whole idea of cervical vestibular physical therapy that really there have been good randomized controlled trials that have demonstrated that this really helps and again it may be something that you can institute even as quickly as as soon as 5 days after the injury which is sooner than what had been thought at the last consensus statement back at Berlin in 2017 And so I think from that standpoint, the vestibular physical therapy really had a lot of evidence to support that. The active approach definitely is also one that is and should be basically taking center stage in terms of the approach for anyone that seems to be going on into that persisting symptoms perspective. What was interesting is that, as you can imagine, 
So one of the areas of interest for our research group at CHOP is visual and vision rehabilitation or occupational therapy. And there is some good data, but in the military population. And so those were not included in our review. And there does need to be more research along those lines in children, even though it seems very promising. The randomized control trials have not been done yet. And so again, at this point, the cervical vestibular rehab really seems to be the main linchpin. Collaborative care, multidisciplinary care, making sure that we're addressing all of the behavioral and mood issues that may be also involved. And then really from that perspective, I think the whole issue of aerobic activity and exercise was a big enough deal that they broke that out into another systematic review altogether. So I know a lot of us use that all in a package deal, which we would still encourage. I think just because it was broken out in a systematic review doesn't mean that it has to be a separate therapy. I think that our PTs are fully capable of integrating all this into a really great rehab program for our teenagers. But definitely they broke out the exercise piece just because there was such an explosion in data and really important information to get out there along those lines. But we would look at it as like an integral kind of whole in terms of an approach to any athlete that would have persisting symptoms moving beyond a month. It's good stuff. And it's there's definitely, I think the hardest part that we found with our, our review is that the quality and the numbers in these studies are still pretty small. Very small. And it's the problem is teasing some of these things out. That was the hardest thing we had with our review is that most, so many of these things are multimodal and you can't tease out, was it the cervical? Was it the vestibular? Was it, exactly. Yeah. No, so, so that's not. the hard part. It is. Yeah. If you're a PT out there and you're doing research, what would super be awesome is to just focus on one of those things to start off with. I know we want to do all this multimodal rehab, but if you really want to look at interventions and see if what we're doing is really the right path, it's go down really, that route of picking one of these things and go with it. It is. It's really tough. And I think that then the hard thing is that all those studies require funding. Yeah, That's the tough part is that behavioral therapies are expensive to do um, and hard to get really like solid endpoints to make sure you demonstrate a really solid effect. And so I think we may be limited with essentially extrapolating from these smaller studies as long as they're smaller and well-designed. Hopefully that will do the trick. We will take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue discussing the Amsterdam Concussion and Sports Guidelines reports. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. 
Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. And now back to the podcast. I think probably the biggest thing that we will focus on here that I think probably everybody wants to know about is what's up with the scat six. What's up with the child scat six. And now we got the bomb to drop on you as far as the whole new intervention that's there. So I want to just start off. I made some notes because I went and compared the scat five and the scat six, both the adult and child. I'm just going to go through and highlight some of these things for everybody. We can kind of talk about each of these as I go through them. So I think the biggest key here now with the child scat six is if you're seven and under, you don't have a tool anymore. And again, for good reason, we don't have good research in the five to seven-year-old age group. I know that's a plea every single time that we hear these statements come out, but I don't know about you. I don't honestly see that many five to seven-year-olds coming in with sports-related concussions in my office. So the numbers are small, so it gets really hard to intervene. And I don't know, again, if it's and get the research on it. I don't know that we're ever going to solve that dilemma, even for those of us that see lots of concussions. So the new child SCAT 6 is from 8 to 12, and then the SCAT 6 is applicable 13 and up. And the big key here, which I think is important for a lot of people to take away, because I know a lot of clinics do this where they will do serial SCAT 5s, just thinking about now, or even athletic trainers will do this with their athletes that really we know that this is most appropriate in the first 72 hours after the injury. And then there's diminishing returns on the effectiveness of this teasing it out. And really, once you get seven days after the injury, it's probably not going to help you. So if your protocols and your processes there are to still be doing SCAT 5s, like serial SCAT 5s on people, and now obviously a SCAT 6, you could probably stop that. I think probably an initial assessment is probably helpful. And then maybe beyond that, it's probably not as helpful. Any things you want to add on that, Tino? Yeah, no, I think you've really distilled that down really perfectly, actually, Mark. And I think it just does run up against the inherent limitations of this being a sport-related concussion consensus statement. There is data in 5 to 12-year-olds. It's just not sport-related concussion data, like you pointed out. It's going to be dumb things that kids do on the sidewalk data that we see because that's what the mechanisms of injury are for that age range. I think the difficulty ends up being all of these tools are put out there because this is what the best evidence is for this particular narrow definition of sport-related concussion that we're looking at. It's just like anything else once it gets out there in practice that people tinker with it. I guess that's, I don't know, that's the American way, right? Like you, know, you improve on whatever gets out there. I know that from a research standpoint, people will be more rigid in terms of trying to validate the SCAT 6. And just for everybody's, to remind everybody, there was no SCAT 4. They skipped SCAT 4 so they could have it harmonized with the, the fifth meeting, which was in Berlin. And so now this is the sixth one. And so now they're just going to have everything move forward according to the meeting and the same number. So there was no SCAT 4. It went from SCAT 3 to SCAT 5 and then now SCAT 6. And now we have, as Mark had pointed out, the Child SCAT 6, as well as the SCOT. Your whole point about the timing and the utility of the SCAT is spot on. That basically all the data had really shown that it's useful mostly in the acute time frame, and that by seven days out, 
probably not very helpful. So that was really one of the sort of rationales for the development of the SCOTE, the Sport Concussion Office Assessment Tool, that basically then people were using the SCAT in the office and it was like not helpful at all. And the SCOTE is meant to try and fill a little bit of that subacute time frame, especially because again, there needs to be something that is helpful along the lines of getting someone back to recovery. And so not just being able to diagnose it, but also making sure they're safe to go back. And so that's the rationale behind that. There was a lot of conversation about how it's hard that you're doing the scat at one end of that spectrum, but then when do you pick up the scote? And do you do the scote early on just so you have a comparison? And Logistically, those are all legitimate, valid, 100% valid questions. And it will be interesting to see what all of the creative folks out there decide to do. And I think a lot of us already are doing something along these lines anyways, right? And, and so I think that ends up being probably where the scope actually reflects both the research that's out there, but also a little bit of clinical practice that informs some of that research. I mean, that doesn't, that research doesn't happen in a bubble. That research happens in a clinical context. And, and certainly what we have done at CHOP with our visio-vestibular examination that we talk a lot about, we've presented and taught ICLs at AMSSM and taught workshops at AAP. That visio-vestibular examination got picked up for the child SCOTE 6 because it's something that people find useful. We have, others have. And so I think from that standpoint, what's nice about this for all of its messiness is that it does cover a little bit more of the realistic time frame that it will take a child, a student athlete to recover and it'll cover your bases. If you look at the form, it is really long. And so <laughs> I don't know that really there's going to be anybody that's doing all of these things all of the time. But I do think that there are, there have been useful additions that, again, we'll see what pans out once it gets out there in vivo in real life. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we'll talk a little bit more about the SCOTE and the Child Scout SCOTE in just a second, because I think there's some important points in there that we can talk about as far as some additions. And a lot of these, honestly, it's interesting that you have the SCAT and the, the Child SCAT and the scout, even though it says it's supposed to be different, there's still a lot of the same of the scat in the scout with some little like other little things in there just changes a little bit as far as the symptom checklist, which makes sense because you're not going to ask about trouble sleeping on the acute assessment. And you want to ask about some other things that may have developed along the lines or along the way since you may have had the acute assessment versus an in-office assessment. And then things that just aren't practical and necessary on the sidelines. You're not going to do the graded exertional test to see where someone's tolerance for exercise is the day of the injury. So there's things that are practical in there. Yep. there there's things in there like, and I freely admit, I never do the word assessment and delayed recall in my office because I don't know how that's going to change my management if somebody does poorly on that or not. I'm not doing any cognitive rehab. I'm not doing any extra additional thing. It's not going to change my recommendation for that kid to go what they're going to do at school as far as what I'm going to recommend to the school. So there are components of that I just don't do because, I, again, I, if I'm going to spend my time, I want to spend my time counseling this patient rather than just doing a test just to do a test, especially if it's not going to change my clinical management. Exactly. You're, you would rather spend your time assessing something that you could actually then, based on what you're seeing, like the visio-vestibular examination, yep. make tailored recommendations that actually could help the patient sure. manage their symptoms a little bit better. So I think you're 100% correct on that. And again, 
I think the issue ends up being with the cognitive issue. I think they did find it is true that in the tool, the five words were just too easy. And so 10 list, 10 word list is there now. And you got the 15 word list as an option if you're really ambitious. I think that again, in terms of even in the use of the SCAT 6, I know a lot of our athletic trainers will say that like they start on it. As soon as they hit something positive, they're done. They're not doing the whole thing because yeah. they've made the diagnosis. And so unfortunately, that's not how the tool was intended to be used. But I think there's the real life aspects. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, I would encourage everybody to, again, read the entire thing, play around with the entire tool, see what works, see what doesn't try and do some research on it. But again, I do know that the authors were really cognizant of the fact that they didn't want a tool that was too unwieldy and difficult to use. So you see that there's a lot of optional things there. I think the optional things there reflect higher level, more challenging tasks that sometimes are needed for a difficult to detect deficit because it's a very mild injury. So I think This is trying to increase the sensitivity somewhat of the SCAT-6, but you may not need all of it to be able to be sensitive in certain instances, but there may be those very narrow few cases where you need the whole kit and caboodle to be able to figure out if they have the concussion or not. And so that increases the sensitivity. And that was, I think, really the goal there, trying to maximize the sensitivity without having it take a day and a half to do. I think that was the goal. And this is where, again, pees me a little bit. Obviously, many of us have had involvement with the professional sports leagues where there is a huge data set that's there, right? As far as baselines and post-injury performance on the SCAT that's there that is really not out there published. And I get it. The leagues have their little privacy thing, and it takes a lot to get, especially with concussions. It's very touchy around concussions. But boy, oh boy, if we really want to get some good research rather than and saying, yes, this works. And anecdotally, we know it works because we've seen it in the sports leagues. Let's get it out there published for everybody to review, too. I think that would be helpful. Otherwise, it just seems like for a lot of the stuff we do with some of those teams is just we're going through the motions with it rather than actually truly saying, hey, does this component really make a difference? That's my thought on it. We were doing this with the NFL when I was working with the Rams going back to the late 2000 aughts, whatever you want to call them. So the early 2000s. So we had the baseline data and we had post-injury data and it was collected on iPad. So I know it's there somewhere. It would just be lovely to see that stuff published out there and not get so touchy about it. Because again, if we really want to advance our care, we really need to get that data out there. Yeah. I think that there is the sneaking suspicion that it looks very similar to the collegiate data. And so that's what people are running with along those lines. And I don't think that I agree with you. It would be great to have that level of transparency. And that is a treasure trove data set that would be great to look at. I don't know that there would be any huge surprises though, because I do think it would probably break along the lines of the data that is seen in the NCAA. Because I do think that again, the professional level is going to be at an elite level that the NCAA is really close to. That's very different from recreational community or even high school level type things. And I do think that probably that's the sense that most people have because there are folks who obviously have seen some of that data, even if they haven't studied it officially or published it officially. But I think that's probably the sense is that the collegiate studies are approximating what you would see in that data set. 
But you're right. And I think, again, uh, one thing that I think, this is not the review that I was on, but I do think Mm -hmm. that there is the thought that eventually we are moving towards where this will be supplanted with some additional, more objective biomarkers, whether it's a fluid or a physiological or something else. And so I do think that everyone senses the field, while not quite there yet with those biomarkers, is moving in that direction. And there'll be something that will come along that will eventually enable this to get pared down quite a bit. And until then, this is the stepwise, staggered, uh, higher difficulty staged testing that you would do to try and do the best that you can to identify someone, you know, Mm -hmm. on field as soon as possible after the injury. For sure. So let's talk about some of the other components here that are changed a little bit. The red flags, there was a couple additions, although one of these for sure, the Glasgow coma scale less than 15, that's a red flag and it's on there, but it just wasn't specifically outlined as a red flag. Visible deformity of the skull makes a lot of sense. The interesting one was the change for the weakness and tingling and burning in arms and legs. It was set in more than one arm or in the legs. And so I was curious, I don't know if you had any, if you heard any of the discussion on that, why they decided to tease that out in more than one arm, as opposed to, is it just to get rid of the stinger kind of possibility here? Is It really was to try and make sure that they weren't automatically pulling anyone that had a stinger that was clearly something that was different in terms of mechanism and etiology. And so there was a lot of conversation, I think, in terms of how specific to get with the red flags. Again, just because there is sometimes benefit to being more specific, but sometimes there's more benefit to being more general. And I think that this is one where they just felt like, since it is common in the collision sports, you don't want everyone getting pulled every time there's a stinger on the field to get the full-on concussion assessment necessarily. So I think that was the thought process. But an important point in a take-home is that you can't discount a stinger as a stinger alone without asking some simple things about a concussion as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. athletes figure out ways to tease the system there a little bit, and they may come off saying, oh, yeah, I've got a stinger. In reality, they got a concussion, and they're using that assessment as that. If you get an athlete coming over the sideline with the quote-unquote stinger, please at least ask about some simple yeah, concussion stuff to start with. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. And then some other changes, the observable signs they've added falling unprotected to the surface. So like falling like a ragdoll kind of thing, that sort of thing, impact seizures, and then added a high risk mechanism of injury. And this was considered to be a sport dependent thing. It wasn't specifics as far as outlined what that was, but that was another thing that was an observable sign there. C-spine assessment. I don't understand why this wasn't there to begin with, but they added it. Is there tenderness to palpation? Duh. Should make sense. You're not just going to ask about motion. You should also make sure. Conversation was kind of like, we should have had this before. Why didn't we? Yeah. And it's one of those things you're thinking about it and everybody probably does it, but in the big things, we probably need to spell it out. And so that was added to the cervical spine assessment. And then uh, fourth step, which I think is adding a lot of things, stuff that we've talked about, VOMs and things like that on the sidelines, coordination, finger to nose normal for both hands with eyes open, eyes closed, ocular motor assessment without moving head or neck, and the patient looks side to side, up and down without double vision. And is there any observed extraocular movements that are abnormal? So you want to make sure that extraocular movements were truly normal. So looking for that nystagmus or other things that we'll see with ocular motor dysfunction. Yep, yep. Symptom evaluation is essentially the same. There wasn't much difference that was there. The big thing I always, the neck pain is always, they moved it down to the bottom and I actually didn't realize that they changed this at the previous one, which kind of frustrates me a little bit because I think that needs to be up high because I 
we want to make sure that we're asking about the neck, but it is down at the bottom of the symptom checklist. That doesn't mean you have to have it that way on your checklist. It's not on mine uh, in the office. That's number two on mine in the office (laughs) because I do want to know if the neck is a problem. And then the cognitive strain, they did go to the mandatory, I guess, mandatory recommended of the 10 words. So the five words have been eliminated. The 10 words are now considered the standard. And as Tina mentioned, there is this optional 15 word thing, which makes me always interested. I think they found the normal distribution with the 10 words. So I was interested why they decided to add an optional 15 word. I think just let's leave it be, <laughs> see where that plays out and then go from there. I think um, it's probably just a little bit of overachieving. I <laughs> make sure like they covered all the bases there because, uh, but I, I do think, I don't think 15 will get utilized a lot. I think the data was pretty robust about 10 having that normal distribution. Yeah, I think we should do a study at the next AMSSM meeting as a normal distribution for sports medicine physicians for 10 words. I know, good golly, 15 words. I think we always joke when we talk about it. What's the day of the week? What's the day? What's the month? All that kind of stuff. We're asking these questions. I don't even remember half the time just because (laughs) the days go by so quick. That's because, exactly. Yep. And then the days in reverse which is this distinction between the child scat and the scat. So in the 13 and over, it's months of the year in reverse. For kids, it's days of the week in reverse, which that I'd love that to be a study. I don't think we've ever looked at that as a study to see how accurate that is. I don't know that I've ever had any patient that has done poorly on days of the week in reverse. There's been a couple they caught themselves, but I don't know that anybody's actually like totally missed stuff on days of the week. So I'd be curious to see how accurate that one really is and how helpful that is. But they have gone back, which was on previous SCAD assessments, back to a 30-second time limit. That was eliminated previously. Now there's back to a 30-second time limit. I think people were probably getting sick of waiting for people to go through their (laughs) months of the year and days of the week in reverse. And you get 30 seconds and that's it. And let's go. It's like the pitch clock in the end. Exactly. Let's get these assessments down. If we're going to add other stuff, we got to cut time somewhere. Exactly. And then that's the big thing is that they added the time tandem gate and the complex tandem gate to this. And a shout out to our colleague, David Howell, who's done a lot of work in this area here with the dual task things. And what they use in the kids is serial threes. And I'd love your take on this because I I think people forget, and I don't remember if this has been included in any of the studies because this was a 1997 study. I used to quote this all the time in my concussion talks about why do we use months of the year in reverse? And Craig Young, our colleague in Milwaukee, family practice doc, sports medicine doc there, who I know well, he published a study looking at high school athletes and their accuracy at serial sevens, serial threes, and months of the year in reverse. So for, and I have to write this down because I I used to know this by heart. I know months in the year in reverse and this is at baseline. Yeah. 89% of high school students could do months of the year in reverse correctly. Mm-hmm. When you got to serial sevens, it went down to 51%. Mm-hmm. And then serial threes was 79%. So as I always used to joke when I gave this talk, it's like, is that a testimony of our math teaching in schools? Is that we're that poor that high school students couldn't accurately get through seven numbers of serial sevens backwards and only half of them could do it. So it's interesting that we add that particular one as the dual task way of doing it when we already know from that study, at least, which was a good number of students in that study, that they can't do it very well at a baseline. And then we're adding that to a cognitive task. So I'm curious why that one, why the serial numbers were specifically picked in there. But I don't know if you have any insight to that. Yeah, no, I, I do think that the whole goal really was just to make the tandem gate task a little harder. And so that I think then in terms of whether you use serial sevens or threes, 
probably more just, I don't know that there was any specific data informing that from a developmental perspective beyond what you already described. I think it really was just recognizing and acknowledging the fact that MBES and even time tandem gate had ceiling effects. And all that great work that David has done on dual task really highlighted the fact that just, again, adding a cognitive task can affect that. And that's absolutely, I think, the main driving force behind that. Yeah. So that's the additions to it. So it's not, there's not like a lot of dramatic changes. There's little tweaks here and there as there is every time we come out with a new addition. I think it's adding some things that we have had some research on since the last meeting that shows that these are probably decent assessments to consider doing. So I like that. I'd still like to see, do we peel some of these stuff things away? The interesting part with the SCAT, and I still, I talk about this a lot too when I talk about do a sideline assessment talk, is we still have not really validated Maddox questions outside of the Maddox study way back, way, way back. And that was actually a study looking at only 28 rugby athletes. We've never validated it. Does it, is it appropriate questions for females? Is it appropriate questions for, for athletes in other sports besides rugby? Cause we've had to adjust the questions obviously, cause you can't add half when you talk to a hockey player. Cause they'll look at you like you're concussed oh, right, when yeah. they're talking in terms of periods or innings or whatever you want to talk about. So it's interesting that we still have not really studied that. And we, that's one of our like go, no, go things is doing the Maddox questions on people. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. And I think it is just a reflection of how the SCAT ends up being a composite test. Mm -hmm. And the composite is probably only as good as its component parts. And each of the component parts probably does have a little bit of a Achilles heel or soft underbelly that hasn't been quite exposed. And so that probably gets covered up by the fact that you've got other tasks in this composite tool that makes up for the fact that maybe it'll miss some of a particular type of deficit, whereas then this other one will be less likely to miss that deficit. And so I think that you're exactly right. And it ends up being, we are trying to, I don't know, paper mache together, like a little yeah. tool that's not really knit together real nice and clean, but it's patched together. But I think it works pretty well because essentially it is a tool that is meant to be combined with clinical judgment. There's never going to be like a tool that's just going to be like done by a robot or by AI or oh. chat GPT. We're not going to have the kids sit down and do this SCAT 6, the child SCAT 6 without a clinician actually being involved in interacting with it. So that I think still means we have a job. It is still in that context that the the entire team in terms of authoring these tools very much indicate that these are still meant to be used by essentially people with experience and some expertise in the area because it is still necessary to be able to make that clinical judgment. It's funny you bring up the chat GPT because I actually today earlier I was thinking, I'm like, ooh, if I had time in clinic today, I may actually ask chat BT, what is the ideal sideline concussion assessment tool? And see what chat GPT says. I did get a chance to do that because I actually had patient care to take care of today. Um, so that was priority number one, but uh, I may have to check with that later and see what chat yeah. GPT has to say. report back. I'll be very interested. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. Yeah. And then as you alluded to earlier, we have now the SCOAT, the child SCOAT, which again, they're the six. So don't go looking for one through five, as Tina mentioned earlier. There aren't any. They're just trying to keep numbering consistent here. So if you look for the one through five, you're like, where have I been missing out on the SCOAT for the last 20 years? There ain't been any. So you've just been taking what you were using before and using that as your presumed SCOAT. Now yeah. we have something published out there. There's a couple little nuances here. 
I think that'd be worth talking about. I was looking at the 13 plus version of the SCOT here and just some historical questions that I think were interesting to add here. Yeah. One, one was excessive sweating. And I understand they're looking for autonomic dysfunction here, but I don't know that I've ever had a patient in 20 years of doing this that has reported to me excessive sweating as one of their symptoms. One thing that's never been on this list that I've heard a lot more frequently is ringing in the ears. So I still understand why we haven't included ringing in the ears on this as something there, because that I hear reported a lot more frequently that we don't ask about. It's an excellent question. And I do think that, again, when you look at this, you have to remember that the derivation of this tool is based on the evidence, but it is a little bit self-reinforcing because what it's been studying is previous versions of the SCAT where that wasn't included. And so I think until you, again, break out of the mold and say, someone's got to figure out who's including tinnitus or ringing in the ears as a particular focus of a study, since it's not included in there, it's going to get missed in the same way that, you know, again, because we always have Maddox questions and not other questions, we're going to miss other things because we're always asking the Maddox questions. And so it is just a limitation, inherent limitation of the study being derivative of Mm -hmm. previous versions of the SCAT and the SCAT being a good tool, but not a perfect tool. And then again, that whole composite aspect of it. I still think that you're exactly right. It's not going to replace at all the fact that clinicians, you and I, we hear that a lot. And we're going to ask about that even if it's not on it. And that is obviously our prerogative as a clinician. Um, But again, it's just not in the tool. And I think it's just one of those things where, you know, we just have to be eyes wide open in terms of what the tool can do and can't do. And then that's where we are. Like, it's not going to do everything. We're not going to get a tool that's going to do everything. Even if we get a biomarker, it's not going to do everything either. And so I think it's still always going to be like this composite combination panel of tests and hopefully we refine it more and more. And again, I would say to the folks out there, let's do some research on hearing and ringing in the ears, because if you get the data out there, the systematic reviews will pick it up. <laughs> yeah. And just other just things that I think about is just other visual changes that we talk about. We don't tease all these out, the double vision versus the one thing that has always struck me. And I don't, you've probably had patients who have told you this too, that again, I don't think ever it gets asked about frequently is this when they get hit, seeing all one color. Have you had patients tell you this? Yeah, I have. I've had that frequently. Yeah. Everything goes purple or everything goes white or everything goes yellow. Yes. And I'd love to find out what if there's anything significant about what particular color they see, but that's one that I think we don't talk about enough either. No, and you can imagine like the vision thing is something that we're obsessed with over here in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, we absolutely hear that from our kids. We probably actually don't capture it as systematically as we could to try and study it. And we do think that we do know from our work and others that if you just ask a very bland generic question, like, do you have vision problems? Yeah. You're not going to get the answer that you need to get to be able to help your patient because it's going to be much more specific and particular than that. Again, it is one of those things where you can't be everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. And this has to do a good enough job to remove somebody and do a good enough job to follow them along. And then it really is still incumbent on the clinician to still have the whole 360 view of where concussion research and investigation and care has been continuing to evolve to say, hey, okay, if you're really still having these issues, then well, let's think about 
is the visual system one we got to home in on? Or is the vestibular system? Or is it something else? And so I think it's really challenging. It's really challenging. This is why this is why some people hate concussion, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's challenging. And there's a lot of nuances to it. And that's when I always talk about the symptom checklist is they are super useful, but it depends on how you use it too. So if you just use it, and I'm just going to go through, I'm just going to have the people and I'm just going to tally up the numbers and I'm not going to do any detail of what's going on there. You're going to miss a lot of nuances. The headache of six that's there for five minutes out of the day, as opposed to a headache of six that's there all day long. Yes. Those are two different animals. Yep. So I always tell people when we teach them about using symptom checklist, pediatricians, what have you is, hey, use the symptom checklist as your framework. Use that to guide your clinical interview yeah, so you don't forget yeah. asking about yeah, stuff. Exactly. And then you can tease out the little details of each of those things because that may change your management totally. dramatically there too alone. So totally. No, I think you're exactly right. You don't want to just look at the total symptom score and be like completely blinded by a yeah. total symptom score without actually looking and seeing what those symptoms are and then drilling down when you need to. And so again, it's a jumping off point. It's a starting yeah. point. It's a place to start. And that's, yeah. I think, probably the best way to look at it. Which I like that they acknowledge in this is that you shouldn't look at the total symptom score alone because they acknowledge, which I think is important. I think we all recognize this is you may have a whole bunch of physical symptoms at one point, and then now you get all the emotional symptoms later on as you're recovering and you've got the depressed, anxious athlete instead of the highly symptomatic physical uh, symptom athlete. And their scores may be the same, but they're now completely different animals as far as what you're dealing with, as far as a depressed, anxious one, as opposed to someone that's having a lot of physical symptoms from their head and neck potentially. So yeah, I love that they acknowledge that in here because I think that's an important point for people to take home when you're looking and using these symptom checklists. Yep, exactly. No, definitely. So a couple other keys and then we'll wrap up here. So just to touch on the scout and the child scout, there was the addition of time tandem gate, the complex tandem gate and the dual task gate to those things. And I think that I the other thing I liked here, which those of us that are doing some research in this, we're looking at this as well, is adding anxiety and depression screens, adding sleep screens on here, because we know how all those can interact and interplay when there's enough research out there to show how problems in each of those areas can certainly affect your symptoms and your recovery. So I like that they were included some specific tools in there and questionnaires that are some validated tools that can be used in the office setting. So you don't have to go hunting, which one should I use? I, I think that was super helpful and nice to have those published in this document. Yeah, exactly. I do think that one thing that they were trying to do was have everything in a single place. So it would be relatively speaking, easier for people to find and be able to do. And so I think from that standpoint, it ends up looking like a huge behemoth of a form that's a little bit exhausting to look at or intimidating to look at. But I think it, it really is meant to give you anything that you might need. You might not use them all, but if you need it, hopefully it's there. So I'd love your quick take on this is just, there's two things here that we notice with going through all these systematic reviews. Only about 10 to 15% at the highest were considered high quality studies in this out of thousands upon thousands of concussion studies that have been published since 2001. And the large percentage of these studies are done in the United States, followed by Canada. And we're not, I don't know, and I don't know if anybody talks about this as far as why we're not getting buy-in and research in countries outside of ours. Is it just because we're so concussed obsessed with our sport and other countries kind of poo-poo it a little bit? Because I know that's been talked about in the past that other countries definitely don't consider it as serious of an issue as we do here. But how do we get, uh, how do we get better, higher quality stuff in here? It just seems like there's a plethora of stuff out there that we have to filter through and a lot of it's not great. And how do we get our international colleagues to get their involvement. 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. And definitely that is a slant and angle that biases how the, the systematic reviews and what the output is for sure. I think that one of the issues ends up being, and I think it cuts both ways, to be able to do better research, those better studies are going to be randomized controlled trials. And one could argue that really we weren't really set up to do them yet because we haven't been able to understand mm-hmm. what we're actually even looking at because it was generic garbage can diagnosis and garbage can interventions as opposed to being more precision oriented. And we're not even talking precise. We're just talking about being a little bit more tailored to a particular phenotype per se. And so whether it's vestibular, cervical, or visual, or aerobic intolerance, when you start to identify the actual things that you're targeting, then you're going to get better quality studies. Those better quality studies cost money, right? And so Mm -hmm. then again, I think that if you, obviously, if you're an under-resourced country, those are going to be more hard to obtain funding for and conduct. But I would think, though, still possible, especially at the elite level, and even though those elite athletes are going to be different from everyday athletes or youth athletes, they're still instructive doing those studies. And so I do think that potentially at that elite level is one way to engage, whether it's the Olympic level or the professional level in other countries. I do think that there is an awareness issue, though, too, that basically I think the U.S. is sensitized because of American football um, Mm -hmm. has served as an accelerant to like the bonfire of concussion research. And I think that's coming along, though, when you see the work that's being done in European football, American soccer, as well as rugby and ice hockey, that again, those sports have a similar impact in terms of raising awareness. But then that also raises the whole issue of then the gender disparity yep. research, right? So the mm-hmm. great paper that came out earlier this year, last year, by Chris DeLauro and the group in Georgia, basically looking at the fact that the vast, overwhelming majority of research is in males. I am not aware of really a large-scale all-female study. There are a few small ones, perhaps, but not large-scale ones like they have for American football, which to date really has most of research has been on males in American football, not females in American football. So that's a disparity. And then the other disparity is then again, how do we get at the kids if they're not getting mostly sport related concussion? And so then that just is a whole other field for us in pediatric sports medicine, where again, it's going to be sports plus other Mm -hmm. things. And so we've got a lot of work to do there. So I do think it's going to be a matter of I think we're getting there in terms of getting higher quality studies because we now have the ability to potentially stratify, categorize, subcategorize, and have some outcomes measures that are more targeted and not just generic. But then I do think that the funding, it's going to be important that every organization take up with their own funding sources, whether it's federal or philanthropic or national governing bodies or other groups that are funding research that they actually take up the call and say, hey, we got to actually fund it to be able to be done. Yeah, for sure. And we'll do our little parting thought here from you. i just curious as your thoughts about the topics that were considered the priority here. And so I'll just kind of list off what the conference attendees voted as far as future research priorities. The number one was potential long-term effects. That was 64% of attendees felt that, that was the number one priority for future research, followed by prevention at 58%. Rehabilitation at 51%, recovery by it was 50%, and persisting symptoms was 49%. The child and adolescent athlete was only was seventh at 47%. So 
not too far off, but definitely was not in, didn't crack the top five. Office assessment was interesting, being 22%. That was 10th on the list. And then return to learn, which crushed me, was 11th <laughs> on the list. That was 21% felt that return to learn was there. Your parting thoughts on that list and where you think that is to seem to fit with what you would prioritize? Yeah. I think that what you're going to, you have to really acknowledge is that, that reflects the bias of the attendees, right? Sure. Attendees are primarily all sports oriented folks who are sideline oriented folks. They're not going to be office oriented or necessarily pediatric oriented or return to life oriented. Oh. And so I think that if you did this poll at the AAP, it might look really different. And so that's okay. I yeah. think this is what this group is. I think as long as you know what this group is and what they're all about, they've we've really been able to get a lot out of this whole process as a result. And other people have other work to do, and so that's fine. And so I think we're that we're part of that bridging both arenas where we're a little bit in the sport realm, but also in the pediatric realm. And it's I think an important space to be and a great space to be. Yeah. And we don't want to forget that. And so we got a lot to do and a lot to contribute still. I think that this is fabulous in terms of the output, but not the be all end all. And there's still more to be done. And I think the leaders of the consensus group would definitely acknowledge that this is just another step along the way. And we're still on that journey to try and figure out how we crack this. Keep learning and reevaluating and adjusting as appropriate as we, we get the new science, which is how we should be dealing with science, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and not being afraid to say, hey, things have changed and we learn yeah. things now. And so yep. sometimes the public doesn't really understand when that happens and we have to do a better job of communicating that to them. Absolutely. I'd love to thank Dr. Tina Master for her expertise, her insight, and her time in helping us process through the new concussion and sport group statements and systematic reviews. We will be sure to have links to those articles in our show notes. So if you're interested in looking at the articles, they should be accessible without a paywall. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com, and we appreciate your five-star reviews. Until next time, I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.